I invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to that passage we read just a few minutes ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I like to make it very clear, and I'm going to come at it different ways today, uh, this following statement, what you do with your body matters to God. Let me say it again. What you do with your body matters to God. Um, let me say it another way. What's your body language? Um, body language in the def- uh, definition of the dictionary is the process of communicating, and I really want to emphasize that today, the communicating aspect of what you do with your body. Um, the definition says the process of communicating in a nonverbal way, either consciously or unconsciously through gestures or movements. I might add, not only with your body, but what you do in your body or to your body in that definition. I think based on that, that everything, and and I don't believe that's an exaggeration, everything you do with your body communicates a message to others. Now, some of those messages that your body can communicate Um, It's a message that's a good message, and some messages are bad messages. And believe it or not, some of the things you do with your body at times can be communicating good, and the very same thing at other times can communicating something bad in different ways. Um, If your body is dangerously too skinny, it may be communicating that you have an identity issue about how you see yourself. If you're dangerously too heavy, it may be communicating an idolatry issue about what satisfies you food more than the Lord. Um, Getting a tattoo on your body can communicate things. Exercising regularly can communicate things. Either way at times, getting an annual physical and taking care of your body, wearing the clothes that you wear. You can wear immodest things or modest things when you clothe your body. Um, Body piercings can communicate things. Um, Certainly abortion and terminating a life that's within your body can communicate things. Choosing to drink alcohol or smoke, or take drugs, or not to do those things, obviously communicates messages both ways. Sexual immorality, which is the main topic in our text today, definitely communicates in whatever form that immorality takes, whether it's homosexuality, fornication, adultery, all those forms of immorality communicate things. Choosing to call yourself transgender communicates. It's obvious that what we do with our body in every instance communicates. And I don't think any of us who've ever read the gospel uh, would think otherwise. And especially if you remember Judas when he came to betray Jesus. I mean, didn't it communicate the way he did it? I mean, he grabbed him and he kissed him. Um, A kiss that usually communicates something good and intimate and personal and friendship in a positive way was used in an opposite way uh, to communicate betrayal. And so there are a lot of things in our life, and and that was not just true for us, it's true in Corinth. Uh, There was a body language that was spoken in Corinth, and what you did with your body in Corinth was completely polar opposite of what you would do in Christ. But both of them, whether you were in Christ or in the culture of Corinth, uh, what you did with your body demonstrated your values about what you thought of God and what you, you viewed culture and your identity and what your worldview is all about. There's a lot of things and very much depth that we communicate when we use our body language. And that's why Paul, throughout this entire epistle and letter, ha- has all kinds of things that he wants to say about the 
the body and the body language that we use, especially obviously as Christians. The word body itself is used 45 times in 1 Corinthians, eight times alone in our text that we're looking at this morning. And he uses it to talk about a number of body issues or body language issues. He talks about your individual physical body, and he also talks about the church as a corporate body. He often calls it members of Christ. He talks about metaphorical bodies and spiritual bodies. One day ours will be raised a glorious body. And so in so many different ways, uh, Paul talks about it. But in our passage, he centers in on, and that's what I would like to do this morning, about how you use your physical body and primarily how you use it morally and sexually. And so in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, which we've been the last couple of weeks, um, these chapters are full of what I call body language issues. And the Corinthians, unfortunately, were communicating a lot of negative sinful things because they had adopted and maybe even adapted the view of the Corinthian culture around them when it came to using their body, particularly in a sexual way. And so you can see the words sexual immorality or sexual immoral person is also used three times in our text. In fact, they weren't just using it in sinful ways. Chapter 5 and verse 6 says in some way they were boasting about it. They were bragging about this freedom, sexual freedom that they thought that they had. In fact, last time we compared two lists in chapter 5, 9 through 11, chapter 6, 9 through 11. There are 10 sinful things that are listed and 5 out of the 10 are sexual things. And Corinthian Christians were communicating by their body language, which they they got from their culture, that really when it came down to it, there really wasn't much of a difference between them and the people around them. Paul even had to admonish them that the kind of sexual immorality going on in their community of believers, pagans wouldn't even do, chapter 5 and verse 1. So there really wasn't any difference. In fact, at times, they were actually acting worse. And can I tell you the temptation and the struggle is no difference when you fast forward 21 centuries? Today in America, we live in a society that I would say has a new moral code. And it's the morality of one author I read, the morality of self-fulfillment. David Kinneman, who is a, works for a Bonner Group, wrote this, the highest goal is finding yourself and then living according to what's right for you. That's the credo and the motto of today. Many Christians have joined in with the culture around them like the Corinthians did to embrace this me-centered theology. Unfortunately, Christians in our day in America are not far behind when it comes to practicing what one author said were the six main tenets or guidelines of a self-fulfillment Morality. Let me give you statistics. Uh, U.S. adults were surveyed and also contrasted with practicing Christians to these six tenets of self-fulfillment morality. The first one, here's a slogan. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. The world at large, 91%. Christians, 76%. People should not criticize someone else's life choices. In other words, I shouldn't be standing in this pulpit saying certain things are wrong today. That's what 89% of the adults in America who surveyed said. 76 Christians said the same thing. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. 86 world, 72 Christian. 
The highest goal of life, the highest goal of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. 84 in the world, 67 for Christians. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. That is so rampant today, especially when it comes to sexuality. 79% in the world, 61% amongst Christians. And lastly, and more related to the topic specifically we're talking about this morning, any kind of sexual expression, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. Any kind. 69% in the world, 40% amongst Christians. You see, the Corinthian society also had a self-fulfillment morality. They had their own tenets in which they fleshed it out and the way that they lived it. And Paul's going to use a couple of them in these first few verses with his own counter-arguments against them and why, as a Christian, you can't go along with it. And the first one is in verse 12, and he says, and he uses it twice in the same verse, all things are lawful for me. Now, he uses the same little line, which must have been a slogan that was very popular amongst Corinth, Corinthians, even unbelievers, obviously, because he uses it also in chapter 10 and verse 23. He just switches subjects and goes from immorality to idolatry, where, which is often both related together. But he says all things were lawful. This is a freedom statement. And Christian Corinthians, uh, Christian Corinthians had adopted it. And they thought, you know what, now that I'm in Christ, I have freedom. And all these things are okay for me to do. But all of these statements, if you look at them in the text in verses 12 and 13, Paul uses the strongest word, adversative word, contrast, but. He uses that word, little word, but, three times because he's going to say, here's what the Corinthian culture says, but here's what Christ says. And he's going to pit them side by side. And he wants to say, hey, this is how the world thinks. We would say today, this is, if you're in Jersey, this is how Jersey people think about their body. This is how they view sexuality. But if you're in Jesus, let me tell you, it's complete contrast to that. And that's what he's doing. Notice what he does the first time. All things are lawful for me. See it? But not all things are helpful, he says. He goes on to say in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. But I will not be dominated. I will not be brought under its authority. We might say today, I won't be mastered by it. He says, see, I have freedom in some areas of my life, but the things that are not right and they're wrong before God, I will not let them master me, he says. So he's not denying the fact that they have freedom in some areas, but he says, but sexual immorality isn't one of them. They go on to say this in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And they go on to say, and God will destroy both one and the other. And the argument was, see, things in your body, like the food that you eat and, and the, the stomach and all that stuff, see, God's going to destroy. See, food doesn't last. Your stomach doesn't last. See, God's going to, at the end of time, those are all things going to be done away with. And here's what they were doing. And then they were saying, and so we can apply that to our sexuality in our body. See, it's true for food. But it's also true for sexuality in your body. Because someday, see, God's going to destroy both of them. And what Paul says in the text, notice what he says. He says, the body is not for, meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He's going to tell them, no, see, you've got it all wrong. 
Your body is not going to be destroyed at the end. It's not going to all be done away with. See, because your body is for the Lord and he's not going to show up. You know why? Because he has a purpose for your body that he doesn't have for food. Food goes into your body, but it's not the same as your body. He says your body is not meant for. It is not the purpose of your body. It's not just to be sexually immoral, he says. But for the Lord and for the Lord is for the body. In other words, sex is not for the body and body is not for sex. You can't apply it that way to that topic because the Lord has control over your body. Your body, he says, matters because it's the Lord's. See, it does matter what you do with your body And Paul says, you are not like the Corinthians around you. You're not like everyone else. Your body is special because God created it. And someday, God's going to give you a new body. And to a phrase that almost seems out of place, and you almost wonder why he wrote it, he says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Why is that thrown in there? Because he wants to counter the argument that your body doesn't matter. He says it does. It's not going to be destroyed and it goes in the ground. See, God has, because you're united with him, you have a close union with him, which he's going to talk about in a minute. He says your body is going to be raised from the dead and you're going to get a glorious body. So here's the idea. Follow me. You use your body now for God because your body will be like Jesus's later. And it starts now, he says. So let me put it simple to you. Sexual immorality is incompatible for a body that will someday be raised in union with Christ. It's incompatible. God's going to make your body sinless and and perfect, and it's going to be a glorious body. And he says, your body always matters. Not just then. Your body matters now, he says. Right now in your life. So let me tell you this morning, right where you are, everything you do in your body, it matters to God. There are not little things that matter and little things that don't matter. God says, no, everything you do in your body, and because you have a union with Jesus, it makes a difference in how you use your body. Because your body has a destiny. Your body is going to be raised someday and be like his glorious body. So your body matters because his body mattered. It mattered to God. Now, these are obvious things, and that's why I'm not spending too much time on it. And that's why Paul says to them three times in the remainder of our text. He said it uh, a number of times, ten times in these two chapters. Six of them are in our chapter alone. And that's the little phrase we talked about last week, do you not know? He uses it today in verses 15, 16, and 19. And he's using it frequently because these are things that they are aware of. These are things that he has taught them. And it's a rhetorical question, meaning I already know you know this. And listen, I'm in some ways preaching to the choir today. We understand as Christians and coming to church and reading our Bibles and studying it, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, that we know that sexual immorality is wrong. But the question is, is what do we do in practice? Because the Corinthians knew it was wrong too. But yet they were doing things that should never be done. Even lost people didn't do. And so he says the first time around, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And now again, he's going to do a comparison. Members of Christ versus members. See the word members again? Members of a prostitute. And here's what he was saying. If you, your body is a member of Christ, it cannot be a member of a prostitute at the same 
time. Do you understand that? That's why he was so bold and so strong earlier in chapter 6 when he said, if you are practicing homosexuality, adultery, fornication, if you're doing these things sexually with your body, here's what he says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, your body communicates. And it, here's one, it communicates whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. And the way that you use your body demonstrates that. Not verbally, but in your actions and in your lifestyle, he says. And he wants to remind them, do you not know that you're, you're, you are united with Christ? Your bodies are members of Christ? He says, do you not know that? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He says this, never, it's it's all over Romans. In some versions it's translated, God forbid. In Paul's mind, listen to this, in Paul's mind, it blows his mind that there would be people who say that you're united with Christ and live sexually immoral, immoral lives of any kind. He says, I can't grasp that you would think that's right, he says. Never, he says, may it never be that you get it in your mind that that's who you are. And he's going to tell you why it can't be. It can't be. He says, or do you not know, second time, verse 16, that he who is joined, and he's going to say that word a number of times in the Hebrew, he's going to quote it because in Genesis 2.24, it's going to be quoted that you were joined, husband and wife are joined together to become one flesh. It's a quotation about Adam and Eve. In other words, he's not saying, not only not saying anything new to the Corinthians, he's not saying new to, anything new to anyone because this is how God designed it. From day one, this is how marriage is to be, he says. So you can't be joined to Jesus and be joined to some sexual immorality, in their case, prostitute. You can't be united at both times to both things. See, there's either godless glue that you're joined to, and that's what the word join means in Hebrew. It means to stick or glue together. And that's what God intended for husbands and wives. See, there's God glue and there's godless glue. And see, the world, with all of its temptations around us all the time, wants to unglue you from Jesus' view of your body and sexuality. And that's why he's taking the time, and I'm taking the time, to tell you that when you're a Christian, here's one reality. You are united with Christ's body. You have become one flesh with him in the sense that you're united to Jesus and all that he is. But it's not just physically in the sense of your body. He says, and let me add another argument piece to it. Verse 17, he says also, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit. So listen, inside and out, body and spirit, in every way possible, on every level possible, if you are a Christian and the spirit of God dwells in you, you have been glued to God and God has been glued to you. Do we practice that? Is that what you communicate in your life and how you use your body, particularly when it comes to sexuality? Can I tell you this? Everything, everything in our world screams against it. Boston College professor Carrie Cronin has been dubbed the dating doctor on a secular campus. Because every year in her senior seminar, she includes lessons on what she calls how to date. 
Here's why. Because almost every year, every senior that is part of the senior seminar, they've never been on a date by the time they're seniors in college. So she gives them as their final assignment, they have to, it's the, to go on a date assignment. They have to actually go on a date and then they have to report it. And so once she was interviewed and she was asked, why in the world do you do this? Why do you have, uh, give this assignment? And here's what she said, because so many young adults today have lost the ability to form relationships. And then she goes on to explain that. The social script they most often hear, she says, tells them that having fun means engaging in physical sexual relationships without any emotional attachment or personal commitment. They have learned, and she says, to disassociate their bodies from who they are as a whole person. Researcher Donna Fritas after interviewing hundreds of college students, has found out this. If you don't admit you want, if you do admit that you want more than sex in your relationship with someone else, if you admit that, that you want more than just that, you will be labeled needy, clingy, and dependent. And those are stigmas that young people today want nothing to do with. And uh, Donna goes on to say this. To suppress their emotions of wanting more out of a relationship than just bodily and physical and sexuality. That their emotions don't know how to handle that rejection. And to adapt that kind of view of morality. And it causes, she says, many students to turn to drugs, alcohol, and even suicide to deal with it. It's modern day Corinth. See, Paul is saying... If you're a Christian, this is not who you are. That is not how you use your body. That is not what relationships are about. Your body is for the Lord and for others in a completely different way than the Corinthian world says because your body is all about you. So you might say, Pastor Walker, hey, how in the world in a culture like that, how do I, living in Jersey... And hear that body language, how it communicates all the time to me. How do I reject that and accept the in Jesus body language that Paul and the biblical writers expose to us? Well, he gives us a pretty good framework to think through. And that's in verses 18 through 20. There are two imperatives or commands that bracket this text and they're really like two sides of the same coin there's a negative imperative and there's a positive one and can I tell you up front if you're going to have body language that's biblical body language that's countercultural, body language that lives out the purpose for which God created your body and if you want the true joy and happiness God has in all of those things who is for your body can I tell you you have to have both You have to be able to say no, and you have to be able to say yes. And in Paul's closing comments, he frames it out for us and gives us understanding and clarity about how we can do just that. And the negative one, he starts with in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. The only other time he uses this command to flee 
is in chapter 10 and verse 14 when he says, flee idolatry. I don't know for sure. I could never prove it. But perhaps he was thinking about Joseph in Genesis 39 and verse 12 when Potiphar's wife laid hands on him and he didn't stop to debate with her and give arguments about why he couldn't do this as a Christian. The Bible says she grabbed him by the coat and he let it go and left it in her hands and he ran. He, we would say he, he knew how to flee, didn't he? I mean, G. Campbell Morgan, the old British preacher, said sometimes the best way to fight temptation and sin is a good pair of sandals on the king's highway. And that's exactly right. And the best thing sometimes to do is to run. And you know why Joseph was able to do that? And he didn't have to think about it. I mean, when she grabbed him, he ran. You know why? Because Joseph's life, before he ever got into that circumstance, which he did not choose, for Joseph, purity was a priority. Absolutely. Purity was a priority. So much so that he valued it more than his job and the advancement that he had made in a slave culture under Egyptian rule. He had come a long way. And and, and in a moment, he was willing to give all that up to stay pure. He was willing to give up his reputation and what others thought of him. He even eventually, although he probably didn't know at the time... He was willing to give up his own personal freedom. In other words, he went to prison over this, something he never did. You know, he was willing to give up just about everything in his life. Why? Because purity was a priority to him. And when it came down to it, he said this, I will run for my life. And can I encourage you this morning? Maybe that's exactly what you need. If you want to start down the road... And you want to start down the road of starting to use your body for God-glorifying, God-soaked, God-saturated purposes. The first thing you may need to do is run. Run. Run from ever being online by yourself. Run from any movies that have anything to do that will seduce you into those types of temptations. Run from dating lost people. And may I add to it, unfortunately, the vast majority perhaps of a lot of saved people that you might consider dating. Run from the illegitimate uses of social media. Run from it. Because the Bible says flee, which means for some of you, you need to get out of the relationships you're in this morning because it is communicating in horrific body language what you think of God and his mandates about sexual purity. You need to break up with your girlfriend. You need to break up with your boyfriend. You may need even to run from the friend group that you hang around so much because the whole group is inundated with this type of mentality. See, when someone tells you, and I think Paul in the text is insinuating it is, when he tells you flee from it, here's what he says. Here's what he means, ready? It means you can't handle it. It's that simple. You only run from things that you can handle. You're not strong enough. You're not tough enough. You're not wise enough. You're not good enough. And you need to have self-doubt when it comes to sexual immorality and temptation. That's why Proverbs counsels us this way. Proverbs 28 and verse 6 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And the way that some of God's people at times conduct themselves when it comes to the body language they have and think is all right, can I tell you, you're foolish. Minimally, you're foolish. That you think that you can handle, that you can trust yourself. Paul says, here's the first step. You need to say no on the go. (laughs) 
No on the go. No as you're running, as you're getting away from it. So that means you're not putting yourself, Romans 13, 14, making no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. You're not sitting down. I'm not going to sit down and walk. I'm not going to be hours on the internet for anything, especially by myself. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to watch certain movies. And I, I'm going to, no matter what's going on content-wise, I'm not into that one. I'm not, I'm not inviting other people into my social media that are going to put stuff on my Facebook. I'm not, do, I'm not going to sites that are questionable. You know why? Because I take it seriously. Because I'm running literally for my life. And he says, if you ever want to use your body and have the body language that communicates that God is the most important thing in your life, that's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to flee from it, run from it. But that is not what the Corinthians were doing. They were arguing that sex was somehow outside the body. And that's the argument in the text. That somehow they pictured sex outside the body and therefore it was morally irrelevant And Paul counters with the fact that sexual immorality is not outside the body. In fact, it is both a sin against the Lord and a sin against your own body. And the reason is, is because it doesn't fulfill the purpose for which God gave you your body. See, for them, sex had been disconnected from God's purposes. And everybody says, hey, you know what you say? Hey, use your body how you want. And isn't it okay? Don't we love each other? That's not God's purpose. God's purpose is more than just whether you love or lust someone. He says, no, there's a covenant involved. And God says, you cannot disconnect your body and sexuality from my purposes. Because sex is the most ultimate form of a personal union. Therefore, let me give you a conclusion I came to. Sin is a betrayal of your union with Christ. Didn't he say that? You can't be united with Christ, joined to Christ, and a prostitute. So every time you do something with your body, specifically sexual immorality, it communicates that what you think, that you think your body is your own and you can do whatever you want. That's what you're communicating when you are sexually sinning. Let me go a step further. If you are a Christian here this morning and you are involved in sexual sin this morning, you are telling a lie with your body. You are telling a lie. And that lie is that your body is yours and that you can do whatever you want. That is completely counter to what the Bible in this text says. What we ought to be saying in very specific, and I'm going to illustrate it, very specific and particular ways. Here's what body language as a Christian should be saying. That my body is not mine. He's going to say it in a minute. You are not your own. See, it's not mine. It's Christ. And I don't do whatever I want with it. I do whatever he wants with it. Let me say more. To whatever price it might cost me. Because I know the price Jesus paid. Prostitutes in the first century were often slaves. And if they refused to have sex with their masters, it could be considered a capital punishment. In other words, you could lose your life over it, and many did. And if you read the annals of early Christian martyrs, there are many mentioned by name, and women were mostly there, and proclaiming often when a slave, a woman slave in particular, became a Christian she would proclaim her freedom in Christ by refusing to have sex with her master. And as a result, 
often they were executed for it. One such person was a young girl, a slave girl in Alexandria, Egypt, called uh, Patakina. And Patakina was pushed by her master to have sex, and she refused to do it because she was a Christian. And that's not how Christians use their bodies. And so he was so angry with her that what he was going to do to punish her and actually kill her was to hand her over to the gladiators who would do whatever they wanted to her. But she persuaded him by pleading with him to do this instead. Now listen to this. Instead of being handed over to the gladiators, she said, would it be okay if you executed me by slowly, inch by inch, immersing me in a boiling pot of pitch, tar? Now you say, well, that's not much of a consolation, but let me tell you how much she prized purity. And you know what she said? I'd rather die that horrific way than to be died that way when my body is being misused when its purpose is the glory of God. Now that is such a strong statement to me that that's how far this lady in the first century would be, a young lady, would be willing to go that I'd rather have myself slowly burned to death and disintegrated in a pot that have my body defiled. See, that speaks volumes. It communicates, doesn't it? It communicates that I want Jesus, my body, to be used for him, and it doesn't matter what the cost is for. Oh, to God, that we would raise a generation of young people and adults as well that had that kind of conviction about how much their body mattered to God. Paul's not quite done yet because he's only given us the negative statement, the negative imperative. And he says, flip the coin over. Let me tell you the positive side. And he's going to say it, drive it home one more time with a rhetorical phrase in verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? My youth pastor, when I was a kid growing up, preached a message one time. And it was called, Temple or Trash Can? And he said, you know what? Your body is a temple, but perhaps you're treating it like a trash can. And in Corinth, there were all kinds of temples. Obviously, just there wasn't, there were maybe a synagogue or two or so, but temples were all over to all kinds of Roman and Greek gods. And in those temples, there were often, believe it or not, religious prostitutes that would offer their bodies and they considered sexual immorality as an act of worship to their pagan gods because their pagan gods were just like that. And Paul's saying this, even though that's going on all around you and maybe you even came out of a background where you used to do that kind of stuff. He says, but now that you're a believer, here's what you gotta realize. Don't you know you're not a trash can, you're a temple. And not just any temple. You're not like in a temple to Apollos or any of the Roman gods or Zeus. You are a temple to the one true living God. And that God is not just way out there someone living just like you do and expecting you to be the same as him. Listen, listen your God, is he, has made you into a temple and he's not just out there he is in here because the spirit of God dwells in you he says so you're not just any pagan temple you're a holy temple a set apart temple and your body is not some common thing that's used for just everyday use no you are a special that your body has been separated to God for God by God He even goes on to say in our text that this spirit that's in your temple has been given to you by God, he says. So the argument goes like this. If you 
are God's temple and you're to be holy and his actually spirit dwells in you, guess what? You will not live this way. If that's indeed true, if you are a temple and you're supposed to be holy, you will not use your body that way. And here's the reason why, ready? He doesn't leave us guessing, verse 19, because you are not your own. You are not a free agent. You don't have that kind of freedom. And the rest of this verse and on into verse 20, this is all Greek words that communicate slave language. In other words, you're not your own. You belong to somebody else. You don't have the same master anymore. See, Christianity is not a religion that takes you from being a slave and gives you freedom. No, Christianity, read Romans 6 for yourself, is a, is a religion that goes from one slavery to another. Slavery to sin, Romans 6, slavery to righteousness. Slavery to Satan, now slavery to God. See, when you become a Christian... You found a new master, your true master, and the right slavery, the only slavery that can give you happiness and true joy. And see, that's why you have to understand, you don't call the shots when it comes to your body. See, you don't, you're not in charge. See, the issue of sexual immorality at the basis is this. Do you submit to the lordship of Jesus? It's that simple. Jesus is your master and you are his slave and you have this right to do what he has purposed with your body to do. In our culture today, those who are pro-choice and all the abortion rights people, here's their mantra. They constantly say this, it's my body and I can do what I want to do. Those are words that should never in any shape or form come out of a Christian's mouth because they communicate That God isn't in the equation when it comes to your body. And why is it then that Jesus is your master? And why is it that he can say this to you, these five crucial words, you are not your own? How can he say that? Verse 20 gives the answer with a little introductory connecting word for. See it? Here's why. For you were bought in the agora. This is a word that means to redeem out of the marketplace where slavery was done. You were stood on a podium and people bid for you. Jesus says, see, that's how you were, maybe physically, but more spiritually. See, you were enslaved to sin and Satan was selling you off. And Jesus said, I came and I paid the price. 30 pieces of silver was what the average slave cost. It's what Judas was given for Jesus. He sold Jesus off as a slave. And see, Jesus said, listen, I took your slavery. I paid for it. I bought you out of all of that. You can't use your body like that. I paid for it. I put my spirit in you so that you wouldn't live that way, he says. The only other time Paul uses this phrase in 1 Corinthians 7, 23, he says, you were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. No, don't become slaves to people and don't become slaves to the passions of men because you are the slave of Christ and there is no greater honor. And that's the word he uses at the end of the phrase, honor. It's translated precious in 1 Peter when Jesus says, you were not redeemed with corruptible things from your previous ancestry, like silver or gold. No, you weren't bought with money, he says. You were bought with the precious, honorable, valuable blood of the Lamb. 
without blemish or spot. You know why Jesus has the right to tell you what you can and can't do with your body? Because he gave his for yours. Peter says in the end of chapter 2 that he had his body on the tree. See? Calvary is the reason why he can tell you what to do. Golgotha is the reason why he's in charge of your body. He shed his blood. And that's why we sang this morning. See, it's the only thing that could have ever cleansed you from your sin. And it did cleanse you. And it keeps cleansing you as you live your life for the one that paid the price for your sin with his own blood. Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians this verse, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the sake of him who died and was raised on the third day. So Paul says that's why he can tell you what to do. Therefore, here's the final conclusion. Glorify God in your body. And we're going to talk about that tonight at the farm. What does it look like when you glorify God in your body? And Paul says that's the positive imperative. Don't flee from this so that you can glorify. Say no so that you can say yes. Make little of this so you can make much of God, he says. And I take it to mean that your body was made to communicate this. The body language says this. God is worth everything. To glorify God in a worship text, the temple verses means that I would make much of him, that he's the only God. And the way I conduct my body and the way I conduct my life is my opportunity in life to say, God, you are worth it all. There is none above you. You are the greatest, most satisfying person there ever was. And my body is to be used for that very purpose. And so let me ask you again, what does your body communicate? What is your body language? Let's close in prayer and then we'll be dismissed with a song. Father, perhaps we know all these words today. Perhaps we're even very familiar with the last two verses in our text. But that does not mean that our culture will rest The world around us is relentless, seeking to unglue us from you, if it were possible. To unglue us from the moral basis and foundation that we have laid in our hearts from your word. And even today as I talk, there perhaps are some in faith family who need to run for their life. They need to run. They're involved in this type of abuse and sinful lifestyle in their bodies. And they need to run for their life so they don't ruin their lives. And most of all, that they don't belittle your infinite worth and glory. Oh, Father, I pray these words that we sing in just a few moments would not just be things that we've uttered before and say mindlessly, but they would be real in our hearts because we want to speak a body language that glorifies you. Help us individually and corporately to that end, we pray, for the sake of the one who died for us and rose again, Jesus. Amen.